You are now listening to The Shyest Podcast, when millions of opinions just aren't enough. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Scheist Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Scheist, and it's been a little while since I've done a show like this, but I am very excited for this one because I got to sit down with the host of the Classic Films for Kids series on the Film Detective channel and the author of the children's book about the power of classic films, Movies or Magic, Jennifer Churchill, who was kind enough to send me a personalized autographed copy of her book. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for joining me on what is now Saturday afternoon. Hi, Nick. I appreciate you taking <laughs> the time to chat with me. I've been wanting to do more of these kinds of sort of one-on-one -on -one interviews for the Shice podcast, and I've dedicated a lot of my time to bad movies we love lately, which you will be joining me for shortly. Mm -hmm. But we sort of made one another's acquaintance because we have a mutual online acquaintance in uh, Donald, who is the host of You, Me and a Movie. And I had mm -hmm. listened to your episode with him. It was probably oh. a, probably like a year ago now. Maybe. Yeah. Time goes fast. Yeah. And so I had known about your book and uh, I had known sort of like loosely who you were. And I forgot exactly the circumstances of our interaction, but you were looking for people on Instagram, maybe to, I think to get to a certain milestone of followers. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, Hey, you know oh, what? I, right. I wasn't following you on Instagram. <laughs> I'll do it. And then you just were like, Hey, I'm going to send you my book. And that was very sweet of you. And it came in the mail and we were going through a lot of family stuff. So it was on the table. We came back from vacation after I got engaged and I started going through all the mail that had come. And I was like, Oh yeah, the book was on the table the whole time. And so I want to say thank you for not only sending it to me, but personalizing it and autographing it for me as well. And I actually just sat down and finished reading it uh, this morning. Awesome. And, you know, it's not too long of a read because it is written for children. <laughs> so hopefully you don't find it too challenging. And I don't know, did you being a movie person and I know your mom was in the industry and so you know a lot about movies. Did you was there anything in there you didn't know? Oh, there was a lot that I didn't know. I mean, there was there was probably a little bit that I did know, but I would say it was probably mostly new knowledge because Aww. my mom was in the industry sort of late, mid to late 80s mm -hmm. and through probably like the early 2000s. And then she sort of worked peripherally in the industry doing like award show booking. And uh, she had worked for one media outlet as well sort of towards the end of her life and that was more new stuff and when she worked for robert evans as a personal assistant that's sort of where she f first got into the business mm -hmm. and so you know she showed me a lot of stuff from the 80s i mean she was very much responsible for shaping my taste 
in film and she showed me stuff like robocop when i was way too young and <laughs> coming to america and trading places and so she informed a lot of my sense of humor and my taste in style and you know you have your book which is movies are magic and i think the one that you gave me was the director's cut edition which was a second publishing Yes, um, it's it's the same book, but there was a lot we left out in the first edition that came out in 2018. And so this, this is the one I steer people toward. The other thinner version is still out there, but this one is much more robust and has a lot of sections that we, for some reason, thought we needed to leave out at first. We were trying to make it digestible for kids mm -hmm. and not be too overwhelming. But this one, um, the whole back section are, is a bunch of projects and fun things you can do to get kids excited about learning about classic movies and how movies are made and how movies were originally made back in the day and sort of that linear connection from the invention of film to the streaming stuff they all watch on YouTube and on smartphones these days and iPads. And, you know, I, I want kids, I feel like a lot of kids don't know that connection and where it came from. They just, they've just grown up with having movies at their disposal that they can walk around with, but they, didn't grow up real at like, I guess I, I say movies are magic because it was magic to go to the theater. I mean, they're magic for lots of reasons, but the experience of going to the theater, like that communal experience and being in a theater, I feel like that's getting lost a little bit. There's, there's still a little bit of buzz about some movies and people get excited, but that's part of the magic for me is going to a theater and seeing it on the big screen, the way, the way it was intended. And so I just I just want to get kids excited about movies and and how they can be a communal shared experience, how they're part of our culture, our history, and even in some negative ways, how they reflect where we're at in culture or in a particular time in history and to watch them with intelligence and um, kind of like a media literacy uh, component mm -hmm. of just knowing where all this all the media we consume every day. It's, it, has a, it has a beginning that's not that long ago. Although humans have always been storytellers, the the medium of film is pretty new. And so, um, but it, as new as it is, there's so many people my age who just have never seen a black and white film or, uh, or a silent film. And they, you know, they don't realize silent films weren't even silent. They had live music and they were, in, they were this whole experience. So I just want to, I just want to kind of keep that knowledge and awareness and love of these old movies alive that's, that's just sort of my passion and i was listening to your interview on the film detective and so i i got some of the background but i'm curious like where did the sort of inspiration for this uh book come from um well kind of like you um my mom was not in the industry but she loved movies i grew up in a cornfield in michigan population <laughs> 900 little town and um, not a lot of exposure or access to culture or film or anything like that. But my mom loved to read. She loved literature and she had Shakespeare and Hemingway and books laying around the house that I would pick up. And she had an interest in, um, in, in film. And so we would have to drive an hour to a movie theater and, you know, she took me to see Star Wars when it came out. And <laughs> um, so it, movies were a big deal because we, didn't have them access to them. And so they were very more exciting to me probably than the average kid. Um, but then on like Sunday afternoons on our PBS channel, old classic movies would come on. And this is before Turner classic movies existed. Um, 
there was no little blurbs or anywhere to find out who the actors were or what was happening or what the name of the movie was on. You'd turn it on and it was just on. And But my mom knew. She's like, that's Catherine Hepburn and that's Cary Grant. And then, you know, this movie came out and she'd think about it. She's like, this, this was probably 1941. And so she was my Google and my TCM all rolled <laughs> up in one. Um, and she passed away just this, earlier this year in May. And so I feel even more like these old movies connect me to her um, uh, in kind of like a more nostalgic way than it used to. But, but she definitely had a lot to do with why I loved classic movies and um, a lot of my friends didn't like them. And then I went to college and I had a really cool English lit teacher, Dr. Jeff check, who has passed away also. And he, he wrote, um, in the Grand Rapids press for decades, he was the film reviewer. And then he also taught film history. And so I kind of ended up with a film history minor, even though I was an English lit major, cause I just took all of his classes. I'm like, wow, this can be an academic pursuit. That was <laughs> sort of a, you know, and I think back then you, you can even really get like a film degree anywhere in Michigan. But anyway, I just loved it and helped him work on some research for some um, presentations he did at other universities and things. But then, you know, I was a journalist for a long time and a writer. And uh, in 2010, so I live in California now. I live in Sonoma, California, but I lived in Michigan um, in 2010. I was getting my master's degree at Michigan State University and I lived alone, didn't have any kids yet or, you know, wasn't married. And I would just watch T Turner classic movies all the time. I just always had it on. My friends made fun of me and said, Robert Osborne, who was the host at the time, um, that he was my boyfriend because I spent every <laughs> night with him because <laughs> I just had it on. I like it just, it made me happy. And I, that's all I really wanted to watch. And um, I remember seeing a commercial in 2010 for this uh, film festival that they were going to have in Hollywood that they'd never had before. And it was like four days of classic movies on Hollywood Boulevard and all the old theaters and with the headquarters at the Hollywood Roosevelt hotel. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm sitting here in the snow in a cornfield in Michigan. And I'm like, <laughs> I am going to that. I don't care how much it costs. Um, and it wasn't that expensive that first year. It's kind of, the tickets are getting pricey there, but, um, so I went and there was only, I don't, I don't know, uh, for sure how many people went, but it was like 700 maybe a thousand or some lower number now, like, you know, I don't know how many 10,000 people go every year, but, oh, wow. um, you know, I, I don't work for TCM, so don't quote me officially, but it's, it's a <laughs> lot, it's a much huger experience than it used to be. So that first year I just kind of went, I didn't know anybody found this girl, Jennifer from Alaska that was going by herself too. So we kind of hooked up and walked the red carpet and saw a star is born with Judy Garland. Um, oh, that, wow. the, ver the version with Judy Garland, and so we, we kind of, we kind of walked the red carpet just to go into the, to the movie. And it was so like star studded, you know, Cher was there and Alec Baldwin was there and um, Chris Isaac and just all these people and all these like older movie stars. And they're just there. I sat by Eli Wallach in the movie and watched the movie with Eli Wallach just sitting next to me. <laughs> so it was kind of surreal for me being from Michigan in a cornfield. So um so I've always gone to that film festival minus a couple of years when I was pregnant and I would talk to a lot of people and I think they would even do some little presentations where you can go learn about the history of film. And it, it was a conversation I heard over and over was they're like, well, TCM was worried about having a future audience because it's, it skews older. And they're like, we're worried about having a future audience because kids don't grow up watching these movies and they don't see them and they 
you know, things get curated by AI and all of that. And it's like, oh, you like cartoons from 2020. So here's some more cartoons from 2020. And it sort of keeps feeding you the stuff that it thinks you want to see. And you don't stumble onto these things. And um, when my son, who's now nine, was like two, I would show him Fred Astaire tap dancing. And he would be like, you know, a little two-year-old kind of tap dance around in front of the TV and loved the sound and the spectacle. And he didn't care it was a black and white movie. He didn't he didn't know. And I, it got me thinking, I'm like, well, it's what we expose them to. I don't have to show them all that quick editing YouTube stuff. I can just, I'm his mom. I can just show him this stuff. That's slow moving with dialogue or the silly silent movies of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And kids love that stuff. If they don't have other competing stuff, they're shown first that has more noise and color. And so it just kind of got me thinking and hearing the conversations about all the people that I went to the film festival with and people who worked in the network being concerned about, um, you know, just people in general being aware of these movies. And I thought, well, so I started looking around and there was no book for kids. There was a lot of, there's a lot of school programs teaching kids like how to make a movie, which, which is cool. Like get your hands on a camera and let's learn how to edit and let's learn how to post YouTube videos and, you know, that kind of thing. And that's cool to teach them how to make things and be storytellers. But, um, there wasn't a, like a book, a children's book, just saying like, this is the history of film. And so uh, I kind of start in the, in the book talking about like the um, Lascaux cave paintings and uh, the invention of the printing press. And just to kind of paint a, a real brief history of how humans have always been storytellers and used pictures to tell stories. And this quick moving, this film, you know, these moving images that look so real and reflect reality in such a interesting way versus just a static still photo um it's fairly new and it's it's a pretty exciting invention really when you think about it like you can <laughs> reflect reality and you can mold it and edit it and and tell stories in a really succinct way that's you know magical so when i when i started working on this book i was just working on it by myself i did a i launched a kickstarter to pay the illustrator um and some people at TCM donated to my Kickstarter and then Ben Mankiewicz, who's a host at TCM, mm -hmm. uh, offered to write the introduction to it. So it's not an official TCM book, but they've been very involved in it and, and uh, promoted the first edition. And um, and then I started doing a, a show with the Film Detective channel. And so this uh, new edition has the Film Detective logo on there. And this one, this uh, new edition was done in partnership with them because I have my streaming show with them, um, Classic Films for Kids that Weston and I host. So uh, it was just kind of like, it's like the next phase of it. But uh, so TCM still super supportive and I, they, you know, sell the book at the film festival and come, sometimes they tweet about it and that sort of thing. But uh, it's really like my own, my own project that I just wanted to to bring to life because there wasn't anything like this. And, and I have, uh, I do this little, I don't know if it's a kit, like a little module thing where I can like go to an elementary school and we'll show an episode of classic films for kids. And I read a little bit from the book and I'll pass around flip books to show them persistence of vision and, you know, how this series of still images, when you look at them really quickly and they flip by your eyes really quickly, look like movement and, just to just to kind of put it in their hands and make it real for them. So I'd like to do more of that kind of like outreach stuff, um, like go into classrooms and maybe have some teaching modules for teachers where they could show some snippets of old movies and give them a little bit of a 
like a module to use to, to push it out. Because anytime I show up in a classroom or bring it up or talk to teachers or talk to parents, they're like, oh yeah, my kids have never seen that stuff. That would be cool. So uh, I'm just kind of like on a, a one woman mission to, <laughs> to brainwash the children of the world to love old movies as much as I do. <laughs> And how did you end up uh, doing those teaching modules? Was that something that was presented to you or did you go and have to like seek out uh, some of the administrators at the school or was it something that like was orchestrated by the county maybe? Um, no, it was, um, it kind of came out of the COVID. A lot of people, mm. oh, you know, teaching from home. And so I'm like, oh, this would, maybe I should package this up in a way that people could use it to, you know, share it with their kids in a more intentional way. And so I just added some, um, some content that we had left out and, uh, made it just more robust. And then when you get to the end, there's like a section that's like, here's some projects you, you can do. And, uh, I have a, a friend that lives in Sonoma County, a little bit North of me. Um, and she has a little teaching, uh, cooking, teaching school for kids called little monsters culinary. Mm -hmm. And my son took one of her classes and you kind of drop your kid off for an hour or two and they put aprons on and she shows them how to measure stuff and they make cookies or they'll, and she always makes it fun. And, you know, she does like a fun Halloween one with Harry Potter stuff. And so I had asked her, I said, could you maybe um, give me some recipes that would be fun pairings with film? So you'll see five, uh, like dinner and a movie kind of thing where you can make one of her little kid recipes that pairs with the movie. Uh, so I just, I did do some outreach that way and worked with other people. And I, I have a really good friend, Vicki Whiting, who happens to live in my town. Uh, and she owns Kid Scoop News, which is a national, um, there's Kid Scoop, which is a, um, you'll see like a page in newspapers and um, she partners, she partners with like the state and they'll provide this monthly magazine like a, like a newspaper for kids. And so she's, she's a, a teacher and super connected in that way. And so I worked with her and she's promoted my book too, and put it in her, her kid scoop publication. And so as far, she had the teacher perspective. And so she kind of helped me with what teachers want. Um, you know, they care about common core standards and all that kind of stuff. And so this really touches on you know, as far as a practical thing, things that you need your kids to know to do well in school, there's math, there's science, there's, so there's like a STEM component in learning about how film is made and media literacy and reading. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of um, check boxes. It, it checks off for teachers that need to teach this kind of thing. And it, it kind of, I see it open kids' eyes where they're like, oh, that's where this came from. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's fun. Yeah, it's very cool. And I want to ask how old was Weston when you started working on the book? Uh, 2018, the first edition came out. So he was, he was four. This far. Did you write it with teaching it to him in mind or were you pulling mm -hmm. from already having like been in the process of teaching it to him? Yeah, both. Good mm. question. Um, yeah. So I was, um, taking the stuff that I was trying to package it up in a way that made sense to him and kept his interest, but also, also taught him. Um, so it was the hardest part was sort of cutting out all the stuff that I wanted to put in there. I'm like, Oh, kids need to know this and they need to know that. And, and then I want to show them all these representative films from each decade. Like here's all the, here's the movies from the 1910s. And then here's how movies were in the twenties. And then, 
then sound was invented and then all these awesome movies with early sound. And so I did pair that back and I'm like, you know, I had to stop and think, okay, I, I would like to share everything with kids, but I don't want them to tune it out. So I tried to pare it down to the basics of, you know, this is, you know, still photography. And then Edward Moybridge invented series motion photography with the famous Moybridge horses and, um, and that was kind of like the first movie and, and, and vaudeville and light shows and uh, just all the elements that kind of came together to, um, you know, invent film, <laughs> become the invention of film and um, the Lumiere brothers and, you know, how kids, how people fell out of their chairs watching the train come at them the first mm -hmm. time they saw it. And um, so I just wanted to, I'd like to, what I what I'd like to do someday, and I haven't like pulled it together. This is what I envision. Um, I don't I don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but this is like this thing I'm percolating on, and I'm like I'd like to figure out how to bring this together. What I envision is like you know going into a a, a gym or a cafeteria or a big meeting space in an elementary school, and the kids are there for like a one hour program, and it's dark, and we do like a light show like they used to do in the 1700s and 1800s, like a light show. And then we would bring out like a little bit of like vaudeville performance. And then we, you know, bring out like a player, like a someone playing the piano and kind of just like show, like actually bring to life all the phases of the invention of film and then show some like, you know, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and have someone playing live music, but, but really condensed like a one hour experience where they're immersed and I actually was kind of hoping that's what the Amer the Academy, um, the new Academy Museum in LA mm. was going to be like. And so I know that I know it's new still, and it's still amazing and awesome. And I went last year when it was still really new, and it didn't quite do that. That's like what I was hoping for. I'm like, oh, maybe they're going to do that. Like you walk in, and it's a light show, and then you go into the next space, and it's it's the next mm. uh, you know incarnation of of the invention of film. But they kind of just like jump right into like, you know, here's the Pedro Almodovar room and here's, the, you know, yeah. and it's cool, but I don't feel like I walk in and like, okay, walk me through as a uninformed person or child, like the history of film. So I, I feel like that, that doesn't exist and I would love to figure out how to make that happen. But, you know, that's well, in the future. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you for sharing that exclusive idea. Here, but exclusive. <laughs> LA <laughs> is a interesting space for kind of like pop-up art installations. Mm -hmm. And so sort of what you're describing reminds me of some of these things where I've gone into these big industrial spaces and there's just a warehouse that has to then be built out from scratch. And a lot of them tell a story. And I went to one, I think it was called trees for the forest. And it was about the proper utilization of controlled fires for forestation purposes. Wow. And about like how this practice uh, from the indigenous cultures was very good at controlling these like <laughs> massive, these massive fires and not having the kind of like colossal wildfires that we have in California on a regular basis now. And mm -hmm. so it was a fundraiser also to raise money for the awareness of this cause. And like you go in and there's like a weird microphone setup. You don't know what that is. But then as you go to the back, there's uh, this like forest built into this warehouse. Oh, and wow. they had the oldest tree from 
California that had been uh, cut down that I think was down by Union Station. And so mm-hmm. it was like it was a hundred something year old tree that was there and they had built like an art installation into it and wow. the story and the history of this tree. And so I think like I think your idea is definitely doable. Uh, mm-hmm. and you just got to find some warehouse space and start <laughs> selling tickets on like brown paper tickets. Uh, <laughs> all right, let me take some notes here <laughs> or um, Detroit. Detroit has a lot of, you know, some, I'm a native of Michigan. Detroit has a lot of, um, auto industry space, <laughs> and yeah. empty space, abandoned manufacturing facilities. Yeah. Unfortunately. But, yeah, that's a great idea to maybe look at it like as a pop-up kind of experience. Yeah, because they kind of do that with, uh, they've done it with Van Gogh. Van Gogh, uh, yeah. They did it with, I think there's a Picasso one and a Monet one coming as well, where it's all just industrial warehouse space. They sort mm-hmm. of uh, curate like a projected slideshow that's on the walls and it takes you through like, not necessarily the history of these people and their paintings in that way. Sometimes it does that, but a lot of the time mm-hmm. it's like more of a sort of bringing the actual painting to life in sort of an animated way. But I think like there is maybe a happy medium somewhere there where you could <laughs> carve yeah. out that niche uh, and say, hey, pitch it to the Academy Museum and see what they say. I mean, yeah. it's new. I'm sure they're still looking for ideas. Yeah, like an immersive experience. I think that's what they call the Van Gogh. Exactly. Thing. Yeah, it's immersive. Yeah, and, um, and Instagrammable. Definitely, that's what that's what you got, <laughs> that's what you got to hone in on. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you had kind of like talked about sort of the the algorithm and sort of how it curates content for you. And uh, my cousin's kid is like two years old. And like the way he watches like YouTube videos, like he's just like speed running YouTube videos. And I'm like, my goodness, like he's just scrolling through everything so fast. And then he'll turn on one video, watch it for five seconds and then just like be scrolling again. I'm like, I don't know if he really knows what he's doing so much. It's like until his hand gets tired and then he has to stop and watch something until he can sort of rest and then start scrolling again. But it is a very different uh, methodology in sort of like entertainment programming for children that it's it's going to be a challenge moving forward and i think you know the more we go in the future the more it will be sort of handheld stuff and it's like the phone or the tablet has become the pacifier in a way mm-hmm. so it's going to be a very tricky thing to navigate for parents moving forward and i don't have kids but it's like my fi- my fiance and i like we want to start planning to have our family started here in the next couple of years and these are serious considerations that we have to like take into account of like how much uh, screen time do we want to have for our children like what kind of entertainment is okay and what stuff from my childhood is appropriate i mean i saw robocop <laughs> when i was three years old that's probably not a good thing but i think you know i but you out, seem okay you're okay <laughs> I, I turned out okay eventually but uh i think you know from my mom's perspective she was looking to share the kind of stuff that she loved with me and i appreciate that and so i do want to you know say i'm sorry to hear about your mom Uh, passing as well I know that it was an important catalyst for me in sort of pursuing the stuff that I'm doing with movies right now and podcasts like this so having having had that loss and then sort of you're working with your child now 
to do the classic films for kids on the TV show. What is that like working with Weston and how old <laughs> is he now? He's he's nine. It's not double digits yet. Um, yeah, it's fun. And he doesn't do he, he hasn't had to do too much. So, you'll if you know, if you watch it, you'll see we sort of stand together and he would say a few things and then he'd run off. I'm like, well, what, what Weston's going to go get, you know, go find the film reels in the closet. And, and then, so it's mostly me, but he's, he's present and, you know, cute. Um, and, you know, I tried to really limit his screen time until, until the pandemic and lockdowns. And he was just, the, he was in first grade when the, you know, 2020, when the lockdowns all happened and, so he he went from we don't do screens we just watch old black and white movies and I feel I, I'm, you know I'm not like an expert or a, uh, a researcher and I don't have a PhD in it or anything but I my sense is that watching all this quick editing and short little videos and then on to the next and even even when they're harmless like funny kitty and you know he likes to watch this stuff now. Um, but I feel like it really hurts their attention span and their ability to focus. I kind of see it with him. So when that happened, he had to do school from zoom. So all of a sudden he had a screen and that was sort of, that was the end of me keeping screens out of his life. And we're, we're kind of working on removing them from his life and he's starting to have interests in other things, but he kind of got way into the screen thing and it worried me. Um, so I, I try to focus him on like, why don't, you know, let, on Saturday morning, why don't we put on Little Rascals or, you know, and we might negotiate back and forth. And he really, he loves Buster Keaton. He laughs out loud. He knows who Buster Keaton is. Um, he know, he knows who these people are and his, his interest comes and goes. I don't want him, I don't want to make him hate it by pushing it on him too much. Um, but, you know, he's nine. So now he's into skateboarding and other stuff, but he, he'll surprise me. Some, you know, something will come on or I'll have TCM on and I'll say, all right, who's that Weston? He's like, oh, it's Clark Gable, mom. Like he'll, he actually recognizes <laughs> the people. I'm like, okay, you've been listening to me and you, you know, you're, you're paying attention. So I've sort of backed off a little bit on, you know, he's older, so I, I don't want to, he's trying to find his own interests and things in the world. And I don't want to dissuade him from that. So I'm hoping, um, kind of like I did with, with my mom, there was, there was a phase there where I'm like, oh, those are lame. Those old movies are lame. And I wanted to watch you know, nine and a half weeks and stuff. I wasn't supposed to, <laughs> but, um, but then I came back to it and I, I love, I love classic movies. Like they just make you, it, nothing makes me happier than to just have old movies on, on the TV, even if I'm just cleaning house and doing something and I'm not even sitting and watching it. And I, I am notorious for just, I like to put on the same movies over and over. So I like can do other things, but I just like them on to me, it's like having wall, it's like wall art, but it's just moving and it has sound. And sometimes I even just have like TCM on and have the radio on or music and I don't even have the sound on the TV. I just like it. I like the aesthetic of old movies. I like, I don't know. I just like the presence they bring into my life. And even, even movies to me, movies from the seventies are a little too new. They're starting to get too new. So, uh, but I love Jaws. Jaws yeah, is one of the movies I just put on all the time, and <laughs> and I don't know, and of course, like it happened one night, and uh, pretty much any pre-code or Gene Harlow movie, they they just make me, I don't know what it what it is, something about them just makes me feel happy to have have them on. 
Well, that's nice to hear. I mean, the 70s was a very like particular era for American <laughs> film as well, yeah. where things started to change sort of rapidly. And so the I studio know... system, I can't. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I like the <laughs> as, as evil as it was. I love the movies from the, you know, the golden era of Hollywood. There was certainly a, a level of consistency and Mm, control is probably the right word I'm looking for, but uh, like a pointed scope of the type of films that were getting made. So it was it was a good thing, but also exploitative a little bit in its history of its uh, workers and sort of the contracts that people had to sign at those times. But yeah, yeah. And, and I think I kind of I'm interested in their lives, too. They they a lot of them had hard lives and yeah. like paid their dues in vaudeville and they, a lot of them most of them weren't like from rich families because that was frowned upon and you know no one wants to no one wanted one of their kids who had a came from a family with a name to go into showbiz that was like not not a good thing to do socially speaking and so a lot of like they had hard lives and you know i'll just when i read like about Buster, not to keep talking about Buster Keaton, but when I read about, you know, his life, it's so heartbreaking because he's just like one of the most talented, humble geniuses of all time. And then there's like this huge segment of his life where he was just forgotten and, you know, drank too much and didn't really have a lot of money. And I'm like, you know, it's just sad. I'm like, oh my God, he's like one of the most influential filmmakers of all time and just so talented. And then you'll see interviews with him and he was just humble and he's like, Oh, you know, this is how we do it back then. Like when he was an older guy and he's just totally humble, but I don't know. And then, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the, uh, tragic ends. A lot of them, you know, had were alcoholic in the studio system when they were done with them, they didn't really have like a retirement plan. And so it's, it's, it's kind of depressing and, <laughs> and sad to read about their real lives too. But yeah. I mean, they were, especially the movies from the thirties, they, it was escapism for people who were going through the depression. And so, you know, it, it's, um, it helps people deal with things they're going through. And, and I like to, I like to watch those old movies and read a little bit about like what year it came out and think about the audiences that mm-hmm. went to see the film in the, in the moment. Cause that's interesting to me to think about that. Like how were people watching this when it, when it came out? So I don't just watch it with my own modern lens. I, I like to like, like what was going on? Like, okay, it was the depression and people use their little kind of like now we use, um, what do you call it? Like, like a guilty pleasure or a little, people will spend $5 on a coffee to treat themselves because they can't afford to fly to Europe or something. And so when times are bad, people will find the little things that they can treat themselves with. And movies used to be that thing. Yeah, it was, it was an event to go to the movies. I talked to my fiance's grandpa and he's like, oh, yeah, we used to go and get two movies and a, a newsreel. And it was like 15 cents. And it was like this event. And you would know better than me. But currently we're on a weird pace where at least in what I see, there's probably 20 movies a week that are being released. So you know, you're talking about probably minimum of a thousand new movies coming out every year across streaming, across like straight to digital release, the- theatrical release. So 
was it event cinema in classic cinema where you know a movie comes out and it's the only option um well you know there were the, the big blockbusters yeah and i don't know if it was the only option but i think it's interesting that in the moment back then they thought once a movie had been out and had its run it had no value mm. which is why they there's so many lost films or you know they didn't storm very well and all that those all disappeared in a fire and there's some movies i've read about that sound awesome and they're like yeah that just doesn't exist anymore so it i mean it's amazing the work that the film foundation and like eddie muller's um, film noir foundation that's what they do they find these old reels and they'll you know connect out through the networks and like oh this guy found this reel in his basement and this guy's grandpa used to work you know cleaning the studios and he has like four old reels of something and they'll bring those to the TCM film fest a lot. And sometimes it's splices of things together. And they're like, well, here's, here's like 10 splices of Humphrey Bogart movies that never, that disappeared, but we have like two minutes from this one and that one. And you kind of see these pieces of films and they just didn't realize you could like continue to make money from a film after it had already come out. So it just, they had shorter shelf lives and, Mm -hmm. Um, I remember, you know, Gone with the Wind came out in 1939, and I remember my mom, I'd have to look it up because I don't know what year, but it was must have been in the 70s. Um, it was They, like, re-released Gone with the Wind in the theater, and it was a huge, she was so excited because she hadn't, she'd heard her mom talk about it, and she, but she'd never seen it. And so she got to go see it in a theater, and it was this huge deal. It was like a big second re-release. I'd have to, I don't know, you might want to Google it and look it up because I don't remember what years, but they they did that a few times, but there weren't very many movies that they did that with. It was like, oh, you know, that, that movie's gone. Modern audiences a year later <laughs> wouldn't be interested in it. So they, they seem to have not figured that out back then. So movies would just have a short run and, be, and they'd be gone and on to the next one. And you think like The Thin Man, one of the greatest movies of all time <laughs> from 1934, I think they filmed it in, you know, 13 days or something like that. So it was just, wow, you know. They had the studio system and they could exploit people and make them work all day. And <laughs> they could just, you know, keep spitting them out quickly. Yeah. Now when, I see, now when I see a movie that was filmed in like 21 days, I'm like, oh, wow, that's super impressive. But it's also <laughs> typically a low budget film where they don't really have too many choices. They're trying to work with everybody's schedule because a lot of the actors who are doing this uh, for a smaller paycheck are going on to work on something else that's going to you know, pay the bills for a longer period of time. But some of that stuff on the condensed time frame really stands out for. I think sort of the energy that goes into it because everybody has to be on. You don't have six months. There's not going to be a period where you're doing reshoots. So there is like an intensity that comes to some of those projects. And I personally like that stuff a lot. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if I sort of, I I don't know my timeline as well as you. Uh, Classic movies are not my specialty. (laughs) Bad movies are my specialty, but we'll get to that later. There's Uh, bad movies from, you know, the 20s too. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the 20s, um, that was sort of the onset of the talkies as well, right? And so we're at the point now where we're uh, 100 years down the line from when silent films sort of ended. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people that were responsible for the production of these films and 
sort of uh, curating these films as well are we're losing those people as well. So there's less infrastructure in place. And a good example of that is uh, there's a club out here called Secret Movie Club. Mm-hmm. And they, for a long time, were renting uh, like small indie theaters around L.A. and showing screenings there. And they still do that sometimes. And they, I saw Seven Samurai at the cool. Million Dollar Theater that's in downtown, which is great. It's like an 800 seat movie house. And it was almost full that night, too. So really like great event to go to and to see that many people like in a movie theater at one time is pretty intense. Yeah. But uh, the Secret Movie Club had also gotten a print of metropolis from 1927 and they screened it in 35 millimeter at their small warehouse space and in i I don't remember his name off the top of my head maybe i'll jump back in and throw it in there in post-production but (laughs) uh the guy who curates it who i've spoken to a couple of times um he was just telling us that there are like several different versions of Metropolis out there because there isn't one consistent print, but the one that we ended up watching was like the tech quote unquote, most complete version of it out there. Mm -hmm. So to think that this movie that is incredibly famous doesn't really have like its full version as it was envisioned by Fritz Lang is kind of like a weird thing to think of that the version of the movie that we're watching a hundred years later, like it maybe isn't the version of the movie that it once was. Yeah. Did did you have a live orchestra or live music? No, it's a, it's a too small of a space for that, but actually I think they just did that for this movie. I had gone to the screening maybe pre pandemic for this, mm-hmm. uh, for when I saw it and I saw that it popped up in their listings of shows that they were doing, they were going to do it with a live orchestra. I just, I don't think I, I think I missed it. Unfortunately. It's so, I mean, like, um, I, I've seen it with, it's called alloy orchestra and it's just a three piece orchestra. And they did the live accompaniment to the screening that I saw at metropolis. And it was one of the like most memorable, exhausting it was like emotionally exhausting (laughs) to watch that film it was one of the most memorable screenings i've ever been to was the screening of metropolis with the live music it was amazing did you did you like the film even without i did yeah live music yeah it's very interesting to it's very frenetic it is yeah it's it's crazy (laughs) it's intense it's yeah that's there's no movie like that no there isn't and it's a lot of the things that I like about film as well. And I think one of the things that always draws me to sci-fi, uh, and I had this conversation with somebody else recently, is that I have an affinity for how filmmakers and creatives in general envision the future. And I also like the idea of having to present that future on a limited budget because you have to be intelligent with how you spend your money, where you Mm -hmm. want the design, which elements you want to stand out the most, like which set piecing you want to really focus your time and energy on building because when money is not infinite, when you don't have a $200 million budget to make something, there is no like, well, we'll just fix it with CGI. There's none of that. Like you have to be very particular in your choices. And so I think that's something that always has spoken to me about sci-fi and it's probably why it's the genre that I like the most. And I think Metropolis really does that so well in terms of how it looks for the time that it was made. It's still impressive to see. And it looks, I mean, you're lost. He created a world 
like, and you're, you kind of feel lost in that world. You're not, I don't, I, I, I quit watching it with like a critical modern eye. I'm like, yeah, I was just like lost in the crazy story happening. And it, it looks very futuristic for yeah, coming out a hundred years ago. It's amazing. And it was nice to see it with a bunch of other people who hadn't seen it either. Mm-hmm. And to just like see everybody taking it in, it was a very special experience and I'm sad that I missed out on the live orchestra version, but I think there was like a conflict of when it came out and we were already doing something or we were out of town maybe. Um, So it's unfortunate, but I hope that they continue to do things like that because it is really great to see uh, the investment in stuff like that. And maybe if they were to even do it at like million dollar theater with like 500 people in the audience, that would be uh, tons of fun because that's such a cool venue here in Los Angeles that doesn't really... uh, get the kind of maybe respect that it deserves. I mean, it's a little old and like it hasn't been renovated (laughs) very well, but it's right next to Grand Central Market. So you can go and really like eat any kind of cuisine (laughs) right next door. And you you have this very LA experience in a positive way when you're at that theater. So I hope, I hope they continue to do more like that. But I also wanted to ask you too, um, you touched on it a little bit, but in terms of striking a balance between curating what you have Weston watch and letting him sort of curate his own tastes moving forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, where, where do you strike the balance? Is he picking movies for you to watch now that you Mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't? He is. And what was the, he just introduced me to a movie that I can't remember the name of. It just came out. It was based on a graphic novel. It's a girl's name. Um, it's an illustrated movie. Oh, I can't remember. Is it the Netflix anyway. one? Yeah. I think it's like pneumonia. Not- Nimona. <laughs> Nimona. <laughs> Nimona. Not pneumonia. Nimona. Nimona. I was pretty close. Yes. He, yeah. He's like, mom, this movie's cool. You'll like it. And I, I was like, wow, you you just introduced me to a movie that I liked instead of like Paw Patrol or something you know, goofy. And I we had just introduced him to Pee Wee Herman, Big Adventure oh. and and he really liked it. So then it was sad when he died because we're like, oh, he just started, he just figured out who Pee Wee Herman was. So that was kind of sad. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I will watch, we will watch things that are not all from the thirties and forties. And he, he definitely likes new stuff and he likes sci-fi stuff more than I do. So I'm not, I'm not into all, like all these Star Wars Mm. show series and stuff it's uh, i like the, I like the original <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's too much but he he digs that stuff and and you know you were saying you're you and your fiance are like thinking about like when you have kids where do you draw the line and you watching maybe maybe a violent or adult type themed movie when you were three years old yeah. um robocop um but i think lately i've sort of you know, maybe it's bad parenting, but I've erred on the side of, right. I try to look at at the whole thing. And I'm like, if it's, if I feel like it's a, it's intelligent or it has something else going on, then I'll let him watch stuff that might be considered a little too old for him. Maybe I shouldn't do that. But to me, it's like, if, if it's just junk, I don't want him to watch like a bunch of violence and swearing and whatever but if it but if it's something i feel is culturally relevant or important or has some context to it and i talk to him about it i'll let him watch things like i'll I've, you know i'll put jaws on and let him watch it but then i'm like oh don't watch this part <laughs> wait 
you know, <laughs> when the captain gets killed. But yeah. um, so sometimes I might ask him to like, like, and I'll, I've always seen the movies that I'll watch with him that are like that. And sometimes I might say, oh, I don't just don't watch this part. And he'll say why I'm like, eh, it's maybe watch it when you're a little bit older. Cause it's, it might be a little bit scary to you or something. And I might sort of self-censor in the moment. I don't, I don't usually fast forward past it. I'll just, you know, eh, don't watch this part for a second. But I, but I feel like, you know, I, I found stuff like you did when I was a kid, I would watch all sorts of stuff I shouldn't have watched. And I feel like if you kind of, if you're reading and you're educating yourself and watching things with an intelligent eye, that's different than just, I just don't want her to be a passive consumer of garbage. That's more yeah. important to me. Yeah. And I wouldn't like, don't throw yourself under the bus for bad parenting just because you showed <laughs> your kids something that maybe is a little too mature for them. Um, yeah. I because, told him he can't see, he can't see reservoir dogs yet. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> he, can, he can wait on that. I didn't see reservoir dogs until I was like probably 18, 19. So like he can, yeah. he can wait 10 years yeah. and he'll be fine. But yeah, but, uh, I'll, but, I, but I'm excited when he's old enough to watch some of this cool stuff that I don't think is appropriate for him yet. Yeah. But in your book, you mentioned the importance of having an open dialogue because mm -hmm. a lot of classic films sort of don't handle particular like social issues very well. They're not great at uh, representation for certain demographics. So mm -hmm. in showing them that, you have to have an open dialogue about why this was portrayed the way that it was. And it's it's something that you can learn from. So I think the same thing sort of applies to things that are maybe too adult in terms of like graphic violence or like sexual content. Like you said, mm -hmm. if there is cultural relevance, if it's handled with intelligence and it's not this thing of just doing it for the sake of gratuity, then there is something worthwhile to be taken away from yeah. it. And it's not just this thing of, oh, you know, this is RoboCop is this like stupid, dumb action flick as Paul mm -hmm. Verhoeven himself once thought it was. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah my mom yeah. took me to see RoboCop 2 when I was it was for my sixth birthday. And so I had seen the first RoboCop when I was like three or four. And then, you know, I watched it over and over again from, you know, that age until I was six. And then the second one came out and she took me for my birthday. And then we go and there's a scene where they're like vivisecting a guy and she's, you know, covering <laughs> yeah. my eyes. Don't watch, <laughs> Don't watch this part. Didn't they like... film RoboCop in Detroit? Uh, yes, they, filmed... like they did. Yeah, they filmed a lot of movies. Oh, they don't film a lot of movies in Michigan. So that one yeah. that always kind of stands out. I'm like, I think they filmed that. Thing. That's a good, that's a good movie. And so it's funny too, how movies that I thought were really cheesy, you know, stupid, whatever, um, like pop, pop stuff. Some of them have stood the test of time and now I'm, I'll watch things with a different, you know, with different eyes yeah. instead of become cult classics or like the lost boys. Yeah. It was like a guilty pleasure, but now I'm like, that's actually kind of a good movie. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes your perspective changes or 20 years goes by and you're like, oh, this kind of still was fun to watch. So yeah, and sometimes you don't know how a movie's going to stand up over time. Yeah. And Lost Boys is almost 40 years old now. As is, it? is, as is <laughs> whatever. Robocop. I mean, they're getting close. I think Lost Boys was mid to late eighties. Uh, but so okay, yeah, it's, yeah, it's approaching right. the range of being 40 years old. And I think it's, easier to look at films and sort of reassess them on anniversaries so it's like oh it's mm -hmm. 10 years it's 20 years and then in the 20 years that has passed like what has come 
that sort of focuses on vampires or uh, like teenage friends stories and things like that. And there's a reason (laughs) why stuff like the Goonies and Lost Boys has held up and been favorites of so many people for so long is because the stuff that has come in the wake of those films doesn't reach the same level. So it's because of the Corey's. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The two Corey's. Hey, they had a lot of power in the 80s. (laughs) They did. (laughs) Uh, I also wanted to ask you with with Weston, um, have you made a movie with him, like of any kind, short film or anything? And is that something that he has expressed interest in at this point? Uh, No, we haven't done that. Um, But he is bugging me this the last two days. He wants to start his own YouTube channel. Okay. And so I said, mommy needs to look into this. I'm not, I don't know how we do this safely. I don't want you just, he, he's like, mom, just, you set me up a YouTube account. I want to start a YouTube channel. I'm like, well, let's sit down and look into it. How do we do this safely? It would have to be through my email. And what do you want to put on there and why? He wants to film our dog and our cat doing silly things. That's what I'd he watch that. So I, <laughs> I'm like, um, so I told him, I, I want to encourage that he wants to be, I guess in this uh, media drenched world, I would rather he be a, a a content creator than a consumer. Yeah. So I'm like, well, if you want to be creative. So I said, show me last night, I said, show me some videos of what you're thinking. And so he showed me like this, someone posted a video of a dog wearing a hat and then they put silly words over it and write a silly song. And I said, do you want to do all that? Do you want to like come up with little songs? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, well, we'll sit down. So we might sit down together and, and sketch out how we would make it happen. But if he wants to create stuff, then I want to encourage that. So I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about his platform. He's chosen to distribute his content. We might have to figure that out, but I said, we can, I said, you can start making videos right now. You don't have to have a YouTube channel. You can, you can start doing that right now. So he has a little iPad that he can film the dog on. No, that's, that's cool. Oh yeah, no movies, but <laughs> he he is starting to think like someone who wants to create stuff. So I'm, I'll try. I'll encourage that. Baby steps. I mean, even Baby if he's steps. making you know these videos, but he's putting in the time to edit them or to mm-hmm. do like voiceover work for the pets and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. this is it's it's flexing a creative muscle. Just it's in a uh, a workout space that uh is not classic movies so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a tough pill to swallow yeah. with, and, with from, and, <laughs> and from and from filming well. our show that you know they film detectives sent a crew here to sonoma and we had um you know we filmed for like a week at different locations so he's learned how boring it is to be on a set <laughs> because you know, he's like, I thought we were going to do this. I'm like, well, they're still getting the lights set up. So why don't you go run around? And, you know, he, it was, so he, he thinks there's, he's aware of this boring side of creating things, mm-hmm. you know, the, the waiting, there's a lot of waiting in between phases and things. So he, he's aware of that and that it takes all these different components and people. I think that's one of the coolest things about movies is it takes, it takes people from all artistic bents to make it happen. You know, if you're a painter, you, know, you have to buy your paint from somebody so somebody makes the paint, but pretty much here it's a solo thing. But, you know, movies take writers and um, musicians and actors and directors and producers and set builders and, you know, costumers and yeah. all these people have all like all these art forms come together 
and then create this like 90 minute, two hour work of art. It's just, it's still amazing to me. Yeah, it is uh, an interesting sort of an amalgamation of a lot of different skill sets like folly mixing for example is this thing where this is a very particular set of skills that can either make or break uh, a film and there's like an animated film I don't even remember what it was but my younger sisters love the sound of like the rocks rubbing together in this movie and they they bring it up all the time and maybe it's like a weird ASMR thing but huh, they're always like no this yeah. should have won an Oscar for best sound editing <laughs> well email me that when you find it I will. <laughs> I'm curious what that is yeah uh, I'll, I'll have to ask them about that um but I do, I do, um, I do point out to him. I want him to know, like, if we watch 1937 Snow White, I like, I'm like, people did this by hand. I'm always saying, I'm, you know, he's probably sick of me saying it. I'm like, there's no, I'm not saying people who make movies and, you know, illustrated uh, cartoons or whatever now are, aren't talented, but they're, they're using computers to do it. And I'm like, they, they did this hand and we went to the walt disney family museum in san francisco which is it's not like a disney museum it's about walt disney's life and it has his doodles from elementary school and like a case and um kind of like the story of how he invented mickey mouse and how he got into the industry and uh, just how he started making movies and you know so they have all these you know it's like two pages and then it's like it took however many hundreds of illustrators however many hours you know to make this one movie and it's just it doesn't take that much manpower at least not by hand so I try to point that out to him so he so he has an appreciation for how hard it was at first and how far the technology has come yeah and I think that we've kind of um homogenized animated films to sort of follow a certain formula like a lot of the the character models are some like similar and cutesy and we put them out on a fairly regular basis and Mm -hmm. it's kind of like whatever the next thing is and whatever the next thing is but for film club we did uh studio ghibli films in july and so to see Mm -hmm. all this stuff drawn by hand and see these amazing stories being told by miyazaki and I I said during one of our discussions that it captured my imagination in a way that like 3D digital animation doesn't. And Mm -hmm. it's not that I don't like 3D films. I still like those fine. And at least when they actually like speak to me in a meaningful way. But seeing that this stuff was drawn by hand and understanding like what went into the techniques behind it, and how long it took to produce a film like this over the course of a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it sort of like asks your brain to fill in the blanks in a different way where it's like, mm-hmm. it's going to show you enough of the world to like get your curiosity spinning where I feel like a lot of the digital animation is pushing more towards re- replicating reality or at mm-hmm. least like getting fairly close to that. So that when you see it, you're just recognizing something as real rather than as a piece of uh, like animated art and there was uh you had mentioned walt disney and they invented a technique with uh like cell animation where i forgot where i saw this but 
in they were having issues with like showing uh like zoom and motion on camera so what they did is like they stacked the panes vertically and shot top down on the camera so that oh, they're zooming God. in through the front pane down to the bottom pane and it really creates like this depth of field that wasn't there before and so it's like here's a brand new technique invented uh just to sort of like punch up the animation that they're already doing in that case and it's like innovation like that goes mm -hmm. a long way and it took somebody figuring that out and wanting to figure that out to make that happen yeah yeah, I just, I just got a flash image of, you know, Orson Welles doing that in Citizen Kane where he took the camera down through the window. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, I think that's know. probably what it was, is that it was someone was talking about Citizen Kane and had pointed back to that particular technique in Disney. Yeah. And sometimes not having a huge budget forces the creativity, you know, it leads to the invention, which ends up sometimes making a better, better movie. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and, you know, Turner Classic Movies has been a resource for classic film fans for a long time. I know it's on at Kristen's grandpa's house quite often. <laughs> and, you know, over the summer, it became a hot topic as the sort of merger and the new ownership had. They toyed with the idea of removing TCM or they announced it and then the backlash. Mm -hmm. kind of uh, reverse that decision but can you talk a little bit about what your relationship was with uh tcm um yeah i don't i don't work for tcm but um i'm friends with a lot of the executives there from just being involved over the years so it felt very personal to me but yeah Dave, david zaslav was a very hated name this summer mm -hmm. um so yeah I don't, who knows what goes on behind the scenes but i i, I feel from talking to friends who work at TCM and from reading everything that came out about it and knowing a few uh, writers that covered it, like for the Hollywood reporter and stuff. Um, I think he was genuinely surprised um, that there was a backlash. I really, and he was, he was at the TCM film festival in April. He was there. I saw him there. He was like talking about how much he loves classic movies. And, you know, even with the Warner discovery, whatever their name of their, corporation is now um you know don't tcm is this thing that we won't touch it's part of history it's it's relevant and, and it makes money for them because they don't have to they're not creating i mean they do create new content but it's like little vignettes and little insightful things but they're not making movies not very many they do a few documentary type things but um so they actually with a it's a money-making arm and i and i think they were just he's trying to please his his board and stockholders and all that. And just thought we could treat it like any other thing. We just got a cut and they, they only had a, you know, I don't know how many employees, 150, 200 employees. And they fired 90 or 70 people on all at once, including the top execs who've been there from the beginning that, you know, there's, if, if you've seen TCM, it, ha it, it is different. It has a certain aesthetic. It doesn't have commercials. They will never cut into the middle of a movie they provide context at the beginning and end. they do the intros and outros so the first thing that uh, fans started noticing was like the outros disappeared and they weren't doing those anymore and then they were talking about well maybe they're just going to get rid of the hosts because that's an expense and we're just we just put these movies up but it, like the whole reason it's successful and meaningful and makes money and people feel so passionate about this network is because they provide context and 
they are intelligent about how they show these old films. I mean, they show old films with blackface in them and you can't just put that on without context or talk about it beforehand. Like you're about to see this film and this is, this is what was going on in the United States at this time when this came out and this is why it's bad and why in some ways it wasn't as bad then as it is perceived now because, uh, you know, Al Jolson was actually trying to make a point <laughs> that it's silly that, you know, that we have this division. So it, it was just, it just, there's, it's more complicated than just, oh my gosh, that's horrible, which it, it is now it's like super offensive and, and bizarre, but you can't just put that on and not have context or education around it. You have to, I don't think you should bury the past either. Cause then you don't learn from it, but you can't just, you know, like with, if I'm watching it with my son and I, you know, I have, I have a, a page on that film cause it's, you know, the first official talkie, um, depending on who you ask, you know, there's overlapping history, but people generally talk about, um, the jazz singer being the first talkie film with him. And he's in blackface in that film. And I actually, um, my illustrator drew the illustration with him in blackface at the piano. And I asked him to change it. I said, I'd, you know, this is a children's book and I don't have the space and it kind of would be off from what the rest of the book is about to like go into explaining how that's offensive and weird. So I said, there are scenes in the movie where he's not in blackface. Let's just portray that. And, you know, parents would, you would hope talk to them about that. And I have a section in the updated version where I just sort of give some tips on discussing that stuff. But, but that's what, you know, TCM has been a very responsible network and putting things in context and talking about the history. And, and I feel like without that, it doesn't make sense. So anyway, so I think David Zaslav was very, very shocked at the backlash. There's not a lot of network, you know, people who watch Netflix or, watch a particular network, not very many people know the names of the executives who work Mm -hmm. at that network, like the programming director and the PR manager and the festival director. And people who watch TCM know who those people are at Turner Classic Movies. So it felt very personal to just the fans who didn't even work there, that they're people that they knew were responsible for creating this amazing network Um, just got fired. And so... I think, I think he got it. A lot of the, I don't, you know, a lot of those people didn't get their job back, but some of them did, which is, I've never heard of that happening where the, the backlash of people being upset about something who watch a network, get an executive hired back. And that happened. So, and then uh, Genevieve McGillicuddy is the uh, festival director. She's mm-hmm. been the director of the festival since the beginning and she was fired and now she's back. She's reinstated. So it made a difference that people are so passionate about this network. There's just not, there's no, there's nothing like it. And it's, you know, I had speculated, I'm like, well, could it become a nonprofit because they preserve film. It's important to history. It's important to our shared history, our cultural history, film history. It's just, you know, it's, it's a tre it's a national treasure. So it's still, I know they're not operating with like the full staff they had and hopefully that, doesn't impact the quality. They just, they do such a great job. You can tell every, everyone who works there is passionate about classic film and it informs everything they do. They do these beautiful end of year vignettes. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen them where they find like a modern kind of cool band and put a song over it. And it's a, the in memoriam of everyone mm. in the classic film world who's passed away that year. And it just like brings you to tears. They just, it's, 
they put a lot of time and attention and love into that. And a lot of people who watch the Academy Awards, when they do that similar kind of vignette at the Academy Awards, they do not, not a very good job of it. They often leave like a lot of people out. It's done really weird and doesn't really bring you to tears. You're kind of just like, oh, they're just zooming through this. And a lot of people are like, why don't they get TCM staff to do that? Because <laughs> people would be sobbing. Um, so I don't, it's just, it's a very special network and I don't, I don't work there, but I'm friends with people who work there and I've been watching it since they first aired the, you know, gone with the wind with Robert Osborne in the beginning. So well, it, know, sounds, lot, it sounds like sad. what you're describing is that these are people that genuinely care about not just the films as a product, but that understand the value of them, that want to see them succeed, that want to see a new generation of people take on these films. And I know there was a lot of public backlash, but there was also a lot of backlash among like actors oh, and filmmakers. Yeah. And I think it was uh, Scorsese, Spielberg, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson that were yeah. like the big three that mm -hmm. met with Zaslov and said that like, we want to take this on to make sure that this stays in place. And I guess I'm curious, like without that kind of, you know, firepower attached to the cause, is this something that Zaslov just takes on the chin and moves on? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know him personally. I sense... I, I just read he's, you know, he's, however much he's making, he's making a lot of money. So his board's happy with him. So they don't care. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it was weird to see him at the festival and all the, all those directors were at the festival. Steve, I saw Steven Spielberg there. I saw Paul Thomas Anderson there. Uh, Martin, I don't think Martin Scorsese was there this year. He's been present at the festival before. Um, but Steven Spielberg was there to talk about the film foundation and to talk about how important it is to preserve film and talk about how much he loves Turner classic movies. And David Zaslav was there too. And so I don't know how much, uh, there's just like a disconnect for him about what it means to love old movies and, and then to like annihilate the main yeah. <laughs> place where people can see them. Um, so who knows what goes on behind the scenes, but uh, but yeah, all those people are super passionate. You can, you can tell that it's not just, it's not like money in it for them yeah. to care about preserving film, but they, they care. It's where their passion came from and nobody wants to see something they love disappear. Yeah. I, I believe that people follow passion because I think you can tell when somebody is not really like interested in the thing that they're telling you about when someone cares about the thing that they're doing mm -hmm. that translates on a personal level and I think one of the things that I've noticed a lot over at, at least the last year for sure is sort of this out with the old in with the new mentality and this sort of like modernization cannibalizing the past in a way that in order to sell us the new thing and convince us that it's the best thing, you can't have history of something being better existing. So when wow, you yeah, a good when point. you erase that, it I mean, it happened. I had some examples. I didn't put it in my notes for this particular conversation, but like taking a legacy brand like HBO. And <laughs> turning it into Max, like yes. everybody hated this. There was not a single person 
online anywhere that I knew uh-huh. that was like, oh, we love this change. And by the way, the Max app sucks. Yeah. So you this made is it- David Zaslav too. Mm-hmm. He, this was it his is. decision too. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> not I to see- rag on him. <laughs> I mean, Facebook became Meta as well this year. Yeah. So it's like yeah. a lot of those changes where like legacy media brands are being sort of recultivated. Oh, Twitter became X was the oh. other one. Yeah. So a lot of these media brands that have these huge footprints are all of a sudden changing and trying to like erase the idea that this thing existed before that was better. But I mean, one thing that's if you're on Twitter for any period of time, one thing that you will see on Twitter for sure is that the new X sucks. Nobody likes what Elon has done with this other than him and like his army of (laughs) defenders that just want to say that whatever he does is right. (laughs) <laughs> but it's become a worse and worse place for most of the people that I interact with on a regular basis that sort of understood the value of it beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at least with something like Meta, like I can still go to Facebook.com and it's still Facebook. It's right. not it's not telling me that, oh, this is this other thing yet. It's but- a sub it's a sub brand. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think it's just like trickled down into the way that we've seen like films get made too. And like, I don't want to be like too mean to the new like Star Wars stuff, but I'm just going to use that as an example because a lot of people know it. Like in the new films, they spend a lot of time basically being like, hey, remember Han Solo? Like he's an old doofus now. This new character is a better <laughs> pilot, a better right. mechanic than him. His son hates him. So the, remember this character that you loved? He sucks. He's out of here. Luke Skywalker. Remember where we left him in Return of the Jedi? No, he's mm-hmm. a grumpy old man that drinks like alien boob milk on this planet <laughs> living by himself. He's out of here the too. Blue milk. Yeah, <laughs> he stinks too. And then, so you, you have this sort of like shedding of the old skin in a way that treats the older properties like they're not good. Um, the Creed movies, as much as I actually think those are solid Rocky films, they incorporated Rocky Balboa in a way where the one thing about Rocky Balboa was that he never gave up. That was like his defining characteristic. But when we meet him in the new Creed film, he's like, I've given up on life and like, I'm ready to quit. And it has to be this new character that convinces him to like keep fighting. So it's just like a weird way to sort of get rid of the past with the new product because you can't tell me that creed is the best rocky movie until you destroy the character of rocky that like everybody loved that like made sylvester stallone a star like there's a reason that rocky is rocky you know and Mm -hmm. so to see it done in this sort of like flippant and dismissive way has been very disheartening and just seeing that sort of spread into other media sources as well has been a weird trend that i'm not like super on board with right now it's like i don't dislike new things i go to the movies multiple times a week i love new movies mm-hmm. i'm constantly watching yeah, I do too. New stuff so it's not this experience of like oh i don't like new things right and i think a good comparison is like in the music business there's sort of like oh the music from this era like it'll never be beat or this band <laughs> sounds like this band from 20 30 years ago and therefore like they're just posers and i'm like wait a second don't you like that music from 30 years ago like it's okay mm-hmm. for them to both exist when what's happening currently is actually sort of representing and 
paying tribute to the influences of the music from 30 years ago mm-hmm. versus like, hey, we're going to make a song about how uh, Led Zeppelin sucks, but we're going to do it in the style of Led Zeppelin. So it's not that. <laughs> right. So it's it's a it's a weird thing that's happening, I think, specifically, mm-hmm. at least what I've seen with uh, media companies. So it's been weird and I hope that it doesn't continue. But the reason I brought up Max is because it seems just like nobody thought this was a good idea other than Zaslov. And like, even if you want to merge with discovery, whatever, that's fine. Just put them together. But you already had a working app. You had a legacy brand in HBO yeah. that has that meant quality, that it, meant it, quality. Exactly. It meant this is where the good stuff is. I'm like, why would you erase that? It yeah. No yeah. I, I agree. So I, but maybe, I, maybe they know something we don't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> If, if it helps, like, you know, pay dividends to the shareholders, then if that's what it's all about, then that's sad because then that's going to just trickle down into the quality of everything that we get. And we're going to just be, like you said, on this sort of slippery slope towards just like blind consumerism where it doesn't even matter what the quality is. As long as people are in seats and seeing something, then just doesn't why make it good people are here so just (laughs) there's no incentive to make something good when it's going to be profitable right and the studios won't give money to the filmmakers that want to make something good because they don't care but hopefully it's not it's not like that (laughs) hopefully it's not and I mean, the other like big news that's obviously happening in the industry is the writer strike that is continuously ongoing. And I, if I read correctly, yeah. there were a new round of negotiations that were open and then closed very quickly. At the time that we first recorded this interview, the writer strike was still ongoing. But as of Tuesday, September 26th, on the 148th day of the work stoppage, The board of the WGA West and the council of the WGA East voted unanimously to lift the strike order as of 12.01 a.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. Yeah, I don't I don't even know the latest. Um, I just watched Drew Barrymore's apology on her Instagram account. And that's like the most I don't know if you saw that. um, I did. Because she decided to continue with her show. And Mm -hmm. I really like, you know, I really like Drew. And she's she talk about you know family or film history her her the Barrymore family you know mm-hmm. I love Lionel and um, John Barrymore her great uncle and grandpa um, and Ethel and so I don't know I, what her apology was like it's really it's complex and I have people that work for me that it's, it was about keeping their jobs and so I don't it's the longer it goes on I think the more complicated and harder it's getting but. I mean, how else do you fight back against the 1%? (laughs) You know, they're everyone's there. People are starting to suffer from it, but yeah. And I think they realize like they have to be heard. I I'm shocked. It's taking this long to be heard. So I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know. It's, it's a very strange environment where they can just take somebody and replicate their image and use their voice and do all this AI stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how to protect that, (laughs) but what they're doing is they're trying to protect that. And I don't, I don't want to watch, I don't want to watch something that's just AI generated. I don't know. I I like to, I like to experience things that have a soul (laughs) and, and there's some things you can't, I don't know. I mean, I'll see some things that are created that way or things that are sort of just following like a really 
obvious formula and I don't feel connected to those things. I don't know. I just, I don't want to live in a world where computers create my art. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's the, uh, that's like the dystopian future that we've been told about. And it feels uh, like it's here and it's, uh-huh. it's scary and sad. And, you know, the people right now losing their jobs, that's horrible. And people not being compensated for their work. But I'm also worried about just what it means for humanity moving forward beyond the people affected right now who are worried about their jobs and being compensated for what they do. And, and just to see those obnoxious amounts of money that the executives make. And I, I, I don't know, I, I never understand that. I never understand like the super wealthy and why enough is never enough. <laughs> and then all these people that actually make things happen and create the work don't, yeah. I mean, don't make it- the money. I guess it would be one thing if you're a Zaslav or a Bob Iger and you sort of operate in the shadows and you're not a public figure where your salary is public knowledge. Yeah. But to make $30 million a year to come in and essentially trim the fat or just like get rid of additional spending wherever you can. And then to stand on the front line and say that, you know, the writers and the creatives like aren't worth the money that are what puts you in a position to make the salary you're making in the first place is kind of like just insane to me. I mean, it's very, very tone deaf, obviously, but Mm -hmm. to think that you could make that much money in a year. Meanwhile, you've got actors who like have to work secondary jobs because the residual checks that are coming in are, you know, $30 or whatever. Like my, my grandma was in the industry she was in Sound of Music, and she did a lot of background vocals for mm-hmm. Disney music um, for a long time. And so, oh, like, cool. she had her SAG card, and she still gets royalties. But, like, I, like the royalties are nothing for her. And it's like, okay, yeah. I understand that. But to think that she was not really ever in a position to just do that mm-hmm. when you think of it like, I don't watch uh, something on Disney Plus, or I don't look at the Disney brand or go into the latest MCU film because I'm like, you know what? I just believe in Disney. I believe in Bob Iger. Like, no, it's no. like, oh, who's directing this? Who's starring in it? Like, who yeah. are the creatives involved in mm-hmm. this? And what do they bring to the table that's worth my time? Not, I'm just loyal to the shield kind of thing <laughs> no. in a way that like the NFL sort of operates where they want the NFL brand to be bigger than everything, bigger than the players, bigger than the teams and the coaches. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, these are the people that are out here on the field risking their lives to play this sport. They're risking their well-being and like the average career is five years. So mm-hmm. I am always on the side of the players. And so yeah. to use that same analogy, like I'm always on the side of the writers and the creatives and the actors yeah. who are the ones actually doing the work so it's just it's it's weird to see that a lot of people have you know taken the side of the executives and just like oh yeah if if your job can get done by artificial intelligence then like you suck at what you're doing anyway and it's this weird uncanny valley we've entered where ai is here whether we like it or not and it's just Mm -hmm. finding a happy medium of how to use it and where to draw the Mm -hmm. line and sort of where to regulate like you said what we actually want as consumers because i've seen ai produce art where i'm like hey that looks cool but at the same time 
I'm like, am I going to watch an entire like two hour movie? Am I going to watch every single movie in a year? If I watch, mm-hmm. say, 150 new movies, am I ever going to do that with stuff that's AI generated? I was like, maybe I'll watch one out of curiosity to see what it ends up looking like and what kind of story they can come up with. But for the most part, that's not what's interesting about films. It's like it's a cool technique where it's like, hey, this is experimental. It's new. I think it's worth understanding. But the reason that I watch films is not to just be, hey, that's cool. Like mm-hmm. I, there's that's not why I go to the movies 100 plus times a year is to just go, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, even um, like the Fablemans movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that wasn't like a great movie, I didn't think, but I was interested in it because it was about someone I think is fascinating. Yeah. And so it was interesting to get to see his story of and of how he became a filmmaker. And it wasn't like if it wasn't about Steven Spielberg's life and it was just a story of a kid, I don't think it would have been interesting to me. So I don't know, would I would AI know that that I want to see it mm-hmm. i don't know like because there's it was it was there was like some layers of why that would be an interesting film to people and i feel like the main interest in it was getting this little insight into how he became a filmmaker and became mm-hmm. who he was if it was just a story that's still alone and wasn't about someone famous who makes great movies that i like right. i would have been like <laughs> eh, whatever it's okay but the selling point just... was that it's steven spielberg <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, does, does AI know all these levels of complexity? And like you were saying, it's about the creators involved that may, maybe not everyone is as, as informed or intelligent of a viewer as you are. And some people, a lot of people just passively click and consume and watch and don't, I mean, I'm constantly looking people up, Googling people. Like if I'm watching something, I'm like, Oh, who's that actress? Oh, Wow, like the new Indiana Jones movie. What's her? Mm-hmm. I can't even think of her name right now because I'm just because it's Saturday. Uh, but um, yeah. But she, I'm like she, she. I thought she was great. Phoebe, Phoebe Waller Bridge. Yes, thank you. Um, and so then I just started reading about her and her being a writer, and I'm like, oh, she's a really fascinating person. So now I'm in, more intrigued by her and stuff that she might be in or do. And so you and I see we were kind of like active watchers of film or consumers, and so you know maybe, maybe there's not. A lot of us, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe some people don't care, which is depressing. But that's, you know, not to go back to my children's book, Movies Are Magic. That I'm hoping that we raise a generation of people who do care and care about the people who make the art as much as they care about the, you know, what they're watching. You said you watched some new movies. So I'll ask you I about do. I do. some newer films that. Um, have like incorporated classics. One of them is probably the most divisive film of last year, which is Babylon. People either uh-huh. loved it or absolutely <laughs> hated it. And I mean, it really focuses on a particular era in film history and the transition between silent films and talking films. And then you sort of get this like kaleidoscopic bungee jump through the evolution of films that ends up with like Waterworld at the end. So (laughs) it's like it is a criticism, but it also is a celebration. And it it was interesting enough for me to actually be on the side of I like this movie a lot, but I understand why someone would hate it. I liked I loved it. I uh... I mean, I didn't love it in the way like, oh, I just want to watch it again and again, but mm-hmm. I loved it. And that it, 
I'm, I'm one of those people that processes things. So I am like a, a week or two later, I know if I liked it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I found my, I kept thinking about it and what's her name? Barbie. Margot Robbie. <laughs> Margot, I'm terrible at names. Today. Um, I thought, she, I thought that was her best acting I've ever seen. I wasn't really that impressed with her playing the Sharon Tate character. I mean, she's beautiful, but um, I don't know. I wasn't that like moved by her performance in that movie. And I like her well enough, but that Tim, I was like, she, uh, that was the movie that I thought she was fantastic. I'm like, okay, this is why she's good at what she does. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I felt like she carried that movie and was the most memorable part of that movie. And she really played that character with like depth and with this bittersweet sadness that, you know, some of my classic movie friends, what they've complained about that movie is like, oh, she's supposed to be this amount, you know, like a combination of this actress and that actress and this actress didn't do that. They were too lost in what they knew and what they mm-hmm. know about classic movies. And I'm like, I'm okay with these characters being representative and not maybe one real person. But I feel like, I feel like they sort of captured like the feel of that era with all of its glamour and you know, like messy underside and the dark side. And I felt like the characters were engaging and I don't, I like, I liked it. I, I really, I didn't like the opening with the elephant poop or whatever yeah. that was, so the poop, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. I was like, that was kind of <laughs> gross, <laughs> but it didn't make me hate the movie. And I thought she was fast, like fascinating and amazing. And she captured for me what I have read a lot of actresses of that era went through and how she, you know, I don't know. And I loved the whole scene where they were like, it was like a little over the top, but like, I want you to, you know, it was supposed to be like caricature-ish, I think, yeah. um, where she's like, just cry one tear, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but it was memorable. And I don't know. I like the aesthetic of it. And I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I think like- that, I think that's a movie where, like it, it certainly understands uh, the history that it's trying to draw on, and yeah. it mm-hmm. it looks at classic films and classic filmmaking as something of value, but also is at the same time acknowledging all of like the dirty little secrets of the business and like the yeah. downside of it too. And mm-hmm. I think ultimately, with the way like that it ends, you have this character in the theater like mm-hmm. crying as he's seeing the evolution of cinema, but it also is this man, we love going to the movies kind of thing. Like, despite all of these, uh, like, dark shadows and, like, creepy corners of the business, there is magic in it. And I think that's, like, what we all share as film fans. And then you get a movie like Nope, which Jordan Peele incorporates that first shot footage of the horse riding and sort of builds that into the purpose for the narrative and how this particular family... um is closely tied to the origins of motion pictures. And so I think in the hands of like the right kind of creatives, there is an understanding and an appreciation for classic films that exists. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think it's good that we had like Paul Thomas Anderson, Scorsese and Spielberg really step up to the plate and Mm -hmm. agree to be the champions and the curators of TCM and to really help that uh, trickle down into the minds and the hearts of not just new filmmakers, but new film fans as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And I feel like, you know, they, 
I think one of the things David Zaslav had said was like, oh, we want to appeal to a more modern audience. So we want to get like the big stars, you know, involved in talking and everyone at TCM and everyone who watches TCM was like, George Clooney's not big enough. Like, like we, (laughs) like they've always had that. They've always had big names doing little vignette voiceovers, talking about a classic movie actor that inspired them or, and you know, they've always shown up at their events and do little interviews. And so I don't know what they thought was missing because <laughs> they have that. So, yeah, I don't know when the, when the biggest, most successful names in the industry can't make a difference to save a network. It's very sad, but apparently in this, apparently they at least salvaged it. It sounds like so. And it's, I've seen, I'm seeing it play out. Like it'll be like Paul Thomas Anderson's top 10 movies. You should watch this month on TCM. And they've started doing little things like that. I'm like, okay, this, this is how it's playing out, I guess. Um, I don't know how much they do behind the scenes, how much actual curation they do, or if they just make suggestions or they help make final decisions. I'm I'm not sure how that plays out, but they have been promoting on the network, like in between movies that, you know, PTA says, watch these five, whatever, you know? So if it helps, if it helps find new fans and keep it relevant, I think that was probably the the silver lining was that TCM was in the news (laughs) And it was, you yeah. know, they were talking about it even like on CNN. And so, I'm like, well, I guess it got a little, no PR is bad PR, I guess. Other yeah. than the people who lost their jobs. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. But at least it made, it made the topic of the preservation of film, like a relevant topic for, you know, a while there. It the did. Past yeah. few months. It, it sort of made the people that are sort of like staunch defenders of uh, not just preservation, but of um, cultivation as well, mm-hmm. that you sort of like the the line was drawn in the sand, like either mm-hmm. you are in favor of protecting this or you don't care. And so it really like had yeah. people show their hand in a way that hopefully will uh, be long lasting. And hopefully David Zaslov is not the the kind to quickly turn around and just reverse this decision because there's going to be a lot of negative backlash when that happens. But yeah. I think with well, part of part of probably what he's being paid for is to be the face that gets bashed yeah. and people mad at while behind the scenes, it's his board probably telling him what to do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I guess that's how it works. So maybe, you know, maybe in his mind, he's like, well, this is what they're paying me for to get wrecked on. Yeah. <laughs> to give people a someone to be mad at. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no he's well compensated for that. But yes, uh, he is. <laughs> yeah. I guess with <laughs> what um with with TCM maybe not having uh, a secure future in the way that some of us would hope. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. I'm really glad that like the like big enough names came in to yeah. sort of support it. And I mean, with with the film detective, though, is what I wanted to get Mm -hmm. to is that um, this is a source for classic films as well. And for those who maybe don't know TCM or who like don't really watch like terrestrial television resources, Mm -hmm. I saw that if if I read correctly, I saw film detective was on Plex, Pluto. And I think there was another one that I forgot. Um, It's on some streaming services. Well, it was. Well, it still is. Um, it's definitely on Plex because I watched it, it. 
Yeah, and it's on Sling. Sling, Sling is TV. That's what, the other what one. I watch. Um, but um, so they're going through changes. I'm not sure all where they are. Um, they're kind of got got bought out. So Phil Hopkins was the founder of the film detective and CEO, and he is a he is passionate about film restoration, and that's what he's always done and is still doing. Um, so we're not part of the film detective anymore. Um, I'm not even sure if they're keeping that name. They kind of just got swallowed up and there's stuff going on. I'm looking right now to see they're still, um, okay. They're moving. There's like some sort of standing message now when you go there, let's see, it's, um, they've moved it into Cineverse. So the film Uh, detective is now underneath Cineverse. So our stuff is still on there. Um, but I'm talking, well, I can't really say, but we're talking about the next season and where it'll live. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Okay. So there's, so there's, there's just what you're saying. It's, it's hard to make money preserving film. Um, and there's a lot of people passionate about it who have money of their own and still can't quite, you know, like Bill, you know, Bill Hader, who's doing really well now with his Barry show. I don't know. I think that's over, but um got a lot of attention for that but he he tried to do a thing on T- TCM years ago um before he was as big of a name as he is now and it was a children's thing on TCM and they couldn't quite make that <laughs> it was him introducing kid friendly classic movies and that didn't like it just kind of flopped um so i don't know there's a lot of us that like really know what's important and trying to tr- find the right way to to hardwire it in to how people grow up. <laughs> I think that's the only way to really save it. It is heartening at the, to go to the TCM film festival each year. And I do see like, well, they were millennials now, like even younger, like 20 year olds. Um, I see young, young people coming to the festival. Um, it seems to be a, tr- there seems to be some, um, I don't know if it's the outreach they're doing or it's, I keep hoping it's going to become like cool again, like retro cool to watch these old movies. <laughs> and I, I feel like there is an audience of people who are skewing younger that show up at the festival. So I don't know if they're there to see the movie stars or, you know, yeah. if they really love classic movies as much as everyone who goes there. I don't I've I've met so many classic movie actors going to that festival, like sat and had a cocktail with them and hung out with them and, it's so fun for that element of it. But part of why it's fun for me is because I like to talk about classic movies and I like to see classic movies, but I was just, you know, I was watching Casablanca and I've met all three of the, I've met three kids of, I've met Stephen Bogart, Humphrey's son. I've met Isabella Rossellini, um, Ingrid's daughter. And I, and I'm friends with Paul Henry's daughter, Monica, Wow. So I'm like, I was just, I was like, it was hitting me. I'm like, because I go to that festival and I meet all these kids of classic movie um, people and then like become friends with them. You see them year after year and then you visit each other in between and you stay in touch and you're like, they, it's kind of like meeting. We, we use the hashtag when we interact with each other, my tribe, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, I remember when I went to the first festival. So I, was, I would watch TCM alone at home living in, you know, like I said, in the snow in Michigan and the first time I went to the festival in 2010, the first festival, I remember watching um, Casablanca at Grauman's Chinese theater and it was full house, you know, and I'd never 
been to a classic movie screening at a theater that wasn't like in a little art house with five mm. other people or something where it's like a full theater of people dressed up and like flew from all over to come and to have it like introduced with like pomp and circumstance. And then like people clap when the titles begin and everyone clapping the first time Humphrey Bogart comes on screen, like, woo, <laughs> you know, and I'm, and then to hear people laugh at everything Claude Rains says, I was started crying. Like I kind of start crying. I'm like, Oh my God, other people get it. Other people think this is funny too. Like it was a revelation for me that there's other people in the world. So like through these networks, like going to the festival, um, there's a hashtag, you know, TCM party on mm -hmm. Twitter that people follow in real time when you're like, whatever's on TCM in real time, you follow that hashtag and people just talk about it. Like, oh, did you see he just lit two cigarettes at once? Or what do you think <laughs> of her shirt? Or that dress is stupid or like silly comments that are funny and you feel like you're watching it with your friends. So that, like, to me, that is one of the best incarnations or uses of social media was like a hashtag like that, where all these people who love old movies are watching it and talking to each other, especially during the pandemic. I'm, I've still felt like I could watch movies with my friends. I would, I'm like, I'm going to put on a movie and like get on TCM party hashtag and <laughs> we're watching it together. So it's like the communal element or aspect of it. Um, it means like, it means a lot to me and it's cool to have that experience to like go to a theater and so there are there there are the people out there that love these movies and care about the history of film, and just love movies in general. I mean, I, I always talk about the classic movies because I feel like they're forgotten. But you know, I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet because I I want to see it in seventy millimeter IMAX the way Christopher Nolan intended. <laughs> so Me too. I haven't been able to find time. We actually bought tickets, and then I had to do I had, like work called, and I had to like do some work thing, and so we couldn't go, and so. I think they've extended it a few places. So yeah. like that's on, we're like I, sometime in the next few weeks, I'm hoping I can figure out because I live near Sacramento and San Francisco and okay. they do have a 70 millimeter IMAX theater. I think Sacramento might've stopped showing it, but I think they're still showing it. Yeah, they so, were... did, you, did you see it that way? Did you get to no, see it? No, I saw it in digital IMAX because it was sold out for like three weeks straight. Yeah. I might give millimeter. in and have to see it that way too, but yeah. I'm like, I just want to go see it that way <laughs> if I can. I, I know last time I looked, it was like the first three rows were open at Universal Studios where they have the full like real IMAX screen. And I was like, okay, maybe I I'll hate the front that. row. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. And then I've seen pictures like of people in the front row there, uh, like taking pictures of how distorted the image is. And it looks yeah. like, you know, poor Killian Murphy has like Shrek, <laughs> Shrek face. And I'm like, you know what, though? I kind of want to see it that way now because it would just be such a weird experience but i'm just hoping that i'll be able to see something down the line because like yeah. if you're selling tickets to it as the theater like are you really going to replace that with blue beetle like so yeah. I, it was good to see them fold and continue to let oppenheimer run and they yeah. were doing a bunch of screenings in 70 millimeter as well that wasn't imax which i didn't uh check out yet so i kind of like have one eye on it just in case it opens up and i can get some reasonable seats to it then i'll go see it um yeah but i i would ultimately like to do that and oddly enough like you had mentioned new movies but in running the online film club that i run mm -hmm. one of the best things is that i've come across some people that are classic film junkies as well 
And so we've covered, you know, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We did You Can't mm-hmm. Take It With You. Uh, we did Key Largo recently as well. And a, a friend recommended to me, I think it's Angel on My Shoulder. I think that's the one like he dies and then comes back in somebody else's body. I don't remember exactly oh, what it was. I always like those. Very kinds. interesting. But yeah. Um, and my friend Felicia from film club who picked our movie that we discussed this morning before this interview uh, was mystery men, but she has a podcast that's called seeing faces and movies and she's doing all classic films. So mm-hmm. uh, it was really nice to like have this reason to have a community get together and watch these films uh like as a project and then get together and talk about it and like we cover all kinds of movies it's not just classic it's not just new stuff it's not just you know stuff from the 90s so it's really great to have that experience with people who like genuinely love this as their go-to sort of like comfort cinema Mm -hmm. and uh Comfort cinema. That's yeah. yeah, that's what it is for me for sure. <laughs> good, good phrase. Yeah, I mean, we've covered like so much. I don't know. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, gosh, we, I could just talk about old movies all day. <laughs> I love pre-codes. Those aren't in my children's book. Oh, gotcha. Because <laughs> they're, they're naughty, but those are like my ways to talk my friends who don't like old movies. I'm like, this one has nudity. They're like, really? An old movie? I'm like, yeah, pre-codes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I try to find ways to get my, like my friends who are think like a lot of my girlfriends and stuff have no interest in classic movies. My best friend, Christy, who's amazing. And she loves, she's gone to the festival with me a couple of times and she loves it and she will watch old movies with me, but it's not her thing. Um, so we do a trade-off. It's like, if you watch this with me, I'll watch 27 dresses with you. <laughs> so we, we have like a trade-off, <laughs> but it's hard to find like people in my, like my geographic mm-hmm. uh, vicinity <laughs> who want to watch old movies with me. Cause I don't live in LA. Yeah. I live seven hours North of LA and you know, so no, wine, so no I live in wine country. Though. It is beautiful. And we have a gorgeous historic movie theater here, the Sebastiani Theater down on the plaza. And I've screened a few episodes of my kids show there. And um, I get involved with the Sonoma International Film Festival, which is here. And last year we did do kind of like my idea of my concept I was talking to you about at the beginning of our conversation. Um, We did like a pop-up. We actually kind of did a a pop-up because they have to do a community outreach component of the film festival where there's like a a screening for families that's free kind of thing. So I was that this year and I, uh, we showed uh, Buster Keaton, Steamboat Bill Jr. And which was the episode with West and I introducing it. So I didn't have to introduce it there because we introduce it, you know, and then it shows the movie and then we do this outro. Um, But then we had a room set up next to it with all these art, like crafts, like make a flip book. And we had a, um, like a life-size Charlie Chaplin to take selfies with. And so that was sort of like the concept. It wasn't like full on, like I envision where it's really fully immersive, but it was sort of a version of that. And so we had a bunch of kids coming through and who didn't know who Charlie Chaplin was. And the the best part for me was sitting in the room when the film, when the Keaton movie was on and hearing little kids laugh who'd never seen a Buster Keaton movie. So I was like, okay, my job, this is what it's about. There's like five kids here who think Buster Keaton's funny, who didn't know who he was before. (laughs) And I was happy. 
Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. So it's cool. That's cool. And we and Buster Keaton's granddaughter lives in Sonoma County. Melissa Tal- okay. Talmage Cox. And she um she's in her 70s, I think. And so uh I've met her at the I was a guest speaker at the Buster Keaton Festival in Muskegon, Michigan one year. And so I met her and we have you know we have each other's emails. And so when we were getting props and stuff ready for our to film classic films for kids, I'm like, gosh, Melissa, I know Melissa said that she has one of grandpa buster's old hat his pork pie hats so i actually had seen it she sh- she brought it to something anyway so i emailed her and i'm like this I, if, if you don't want to i understand it would be so cool if we could like borrow his hat for our intro and outro filming and she's like no problem just come get it so i drove to her house she handed it to me in a bag a plastic bag <laughs> like, like a shopping bag <laughs> I'm like, I'm hearing angels sing. It's his real hat he wore in his movies. It's like greasy and little and has a hole in the top. And, you know, he made he made his own pork pie hats. They're like wow. not something you could buy. He would buy this certain kind of hat and cut it and to make his signature hat. So it's his actual hat. So Weston, my son, wears Buster Keaton's actual hat in the outro to our Buster Keaton episode. And he's wearing it in the like the first pages of the book as well, too, right? Well, cartoon, yeah, Ill- yeah. illustrated, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. But he actually got to wear Buster's real hat. That's awesome. I didn't uh, want to give it back. I'm like, can yeah. I just keep his hat? <laughs> but I did. I returned it. So anyway, I just I love movies, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, going back in time a little bit and talking about classic movies. With me, it was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time, uh, especially on a Saturday. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's my passion. It's, it's been a pleasure. I really hope that you you get to actualize some of the uh, ideas that you have, because I would I would love to see that succeed for you. And, you know, I think you said the the festival for TCM is at Grauman's, right? Um, it's headquartered usually at um, the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, oh, okay. the historic hotel, and then they have screenings at various venues, kind of up and down Hollywood Boulevard. They do some screenings at the is it the VFW Hall, which has yeah. a theater in the basement, which is actually a really cool venue. Um, they show some films there. They show some at Grauman's. They show the big movies at Grauman's, and then they also there's like a multiplex in that Hollywood and Highland Mall. They show some movies there. They show some at the Egyptian whenever it reopens the re- the egyptian mm. Net- netflix bought yeah. the historic egyptian theater and everyone was all upset but i've just seen a bunch of pictures of people some one of my friends went and scoped it out and it looks beautiful it looks like they did a beautiful historic restoration so maybe it wasn't a bad thing we'll see so they show Fingers movies crossed. there too that was the only theater that you could see the nitrate film so that's another cool thing about the mm. festivals you could see nitrate films because they actually have like they pay for the insurance for the fire yeah. you know liability insurance or whatever because and there was a fire one year like the film started on fire um but it's something you couldn't replicate stream streaming or on a video or on youtube or anything you have to be in the theater to see it and the the color is so rich and like gorgeous it was um it was cool but anyway um yeah movies are magic yeah, I'll I'll make sure to include <laughs> the links uh for your book for sure. Oh, and if you yeah, have um 
a link for i mean i can put up the film detective website but yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's still okay. they've put um they put our first season on their youtube channel so you can just watch those up they they did air like on saturday mornings you know whatever but now it's it's all packaged up as season one on um their youtube channel so you oh, can, okay Perfect. i can just I'll... send you that link it's free to watch so Cool, we'll do it that way. And yeah. maybe I'll go to the festival next year because I'm an Angelino. You know, yeah. it's right in my neck of the woods. It's not far away. So you can uh, um they have like out. really expensive passes, like the spotlight pass, and you can get into everything. <laughs> and they have different levels, but you can just show up and like pay t- like buy a twenty dollar ticket and wait in line and still get into some movies. So if you okay. want to just since you live nearby, you could maybe just do it that way. Yeah, just make a day of it. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ooh. well, I'm sure we'll you know, we have meetups. There's a lot of my friends that we uh, engage with each other online talking about classic movies. Like we meet up in person at the festival and it's super fun to to have that real life encounter with people that you talk to all the time on social. Yeah, that's very yeah. cool. And, you know, hopefully I will see you there in the future. Because I, yeah. I think you posted pictures uh, this year and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that that was that weekend when it was happening. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it felt like the, Tickets sell out, like the passes sell out, and uh, they're probably going to announce the dates pretty soon. They announce the dates, and then everyone books their hotel, and then the tickets go on sale like a month later. So there's this whole, they have this whole sequence. They might be behind schedule because Genevieve <laughs> got fired for a while, and then yeah. <laughs> they got her job back. So she might be a month or two behind the normal. But Okay, well, yeah. I'll keep an eye it's on a cool as thing. we head into next year. It would be fun. Or you can just, you know, some of my LA friends just like come and hang out at the Roosevelt and meet up for cocktails. And yeah. they, they do poolside screenings, which is super Ooh, fun. That sounds fun. Yeah. Maybe sneak into one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Climbing over the fence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever you have to do. <laughs> cool. Well, Jennifer, this has been uh, an absolute blast. I'm so happy that not only did I get to sort of jump back into more of the like traditional interview format, but I got to do it <laughs> talking about movies still. Yay. So it, it combines two of my loves uh, very closely. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. It was super fun. Thanks again to Jennifer for joining me and for sharing all of her particular insights with me and with all of you. If you want to check out her book or her show, I'm going to put all of that information for you in the show notes. Thanks to everyone who took the time to listen to the episode, and please remember that the opinions expressed on this show are just that. If you like what you heard, I still believe word of mouth is the best way to help, so please tell somebody. But liking, subscribing, and rating the show help out a lot, too. This show is an extension of thescheist.com, and you can contact me at info at thescheist.com or at scheistpodcast on Twitter. And as usual, be well, stay safe, and have fun no matter how you get your movies.